Go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be there in just a second. All right, so if you weren't here last week, what we started, we got a sh- kind of a short little series about Christ and culture. And, and what it's my desire is to shepherd you well and to disciple you well. And this was the number one question that was like, how do I navigate this cultural moment uh, and follow the way of Jesus? All right, how do, I, how do we do that? There was, and this was, again, there was, it was almost as if there was not another other stuff you pick, like 48% of, the, I don't know how many thousands of responses we got, but almost half were, were this, grandparents, parents, uh, people struggling with it, all these things are like, this, this one is it. And so uh, let me tell you on the front end, this is gonna be more technical than I think I've ever done, all right? It's a little, and there's a reason for that, all right? So we're gonna kind of be, I'm gonna try to be a theologian on the front end and then kind of put my pastor hat on on the back half, all right? So we're gonna basically try to say, okay, what's the, what is the, what's the Bible say? And then also then how do I love people uh, in this, all right? But if you weren't here last week, it's super important you understand the parameters in, in the context in which we put this whole thing in. So last week was nothing. We didn't even take a topic. We just tried to lay the groundwork. And what we did is we understood that there's some ditches that churches and Christians fall into when it comes to the cultural moment that we're in. All right, sometimes churches and Christians are very, very condemning. By condemning means, you know, it's like, man, the culture's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just bring up the drawbridge, go to our Bible studies, sing our music, and then wait till Jesus comes again. The problem with that is that is the antithesis of the way that Jesus in engaged in culture, and you basically are like, I don't really care what's going on with the world. You've forgotten what it's like to be, you've forgotten what it's like to be lost, all right? And so we don't want to be all about condemnation. On the other hand, we also don't want to be over here and be all about conformity. Conformity basically says when the culture and the Bible disagree, culture will win, all right? Culture will win. And the problem with that is, again, Jesus was the most righteous one that ever lived. He, he upheld this and said, not a jot or a tittle, which are the two smallest Hebrew letters, none of them will pass away. So it's like, okay, he was the one that was the most righteous. He looked at us and said, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not even going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so how do you balance all of that? And what we looked at last week are things that I'm going to try to practice today. And that is what we said is we want, we want a, a humble compassion on one end. All right, one book in is humble compassion. We understood, we understand that Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, all right? The gospel is that we were so bad, Jesus had to die for us and yet so loved that he chose to die for us, which ought to give us a great deal of humility and compassion right here. We all struggle with sin, so we ought to have a deep sense of compassion for people. On the other hand, what we want over here is also deep conviction, All right, deep conviction. We understand God wrote a book. God's laws are for our flourishing. They're not for our failure. They're for our flourishing. So how do we have somewhere in there grace and truth, compassion and conviction? And that's what I'm going to try to practice. Let me tell you again, probably actually cut a song out because by necessity, uh, this is not only going to be the most technical sermon in the sense that I've ever preached. You didn't come to church to get a bunch of Hebrew and Greek words. You didn't come to, but by necessity, there's a couple that I'm going to have to pick out uh, today. But let me tell you again, kind of tell you where we're going so you understand there's kind of two halves in this whole thing, all right? The first half, again, the uh, first half is what does the Bible actually say? Again, this is not just some, you know, uh, argument out there. Uh, this is a very... This is like the last thing I would actually want to preach on. It is. Uh, Number one, the reason this is a hard topic is it's very personal. It's very personal. 
almost everybody in the room today, it doesn't matter what campus you're at or whatever, almost everybody in the room, you either have a friend, you have family members. I can't tell you how many grandparents responded to that email. It's like, help me navigate this. I don't know how to walk in grace and truth. So friends and family members, this is a very personal issue. It's a very painful issue as well. It's painful for a variety of reasons. It's painful because I can't tell you, untold, untold relationships have been fractured, right? Oftentimes parents have responded wrongly. It's like, get out of my house. And which doesn't seem to be consistent with the way that Jesus held up righteousness, but also he brought people close, just like he brought us close in the gospel. I'm not trying to tell you how to parent, I'm just telling you that just doesn't seem consistent. But it's painful also because the church at large, the church historically has oftentimes not handled this particular sin very well at all. It's either been extremely condemning, it's been shaming. Uh, we can, it's like a guy can confess to any sin at all, even sexual sin. I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. Here's a support group for that. Here's a support group for that. Somebody's like, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. It's like, hey, 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 hey. And so there's a lot of pain there, as well as a lot of hypocrisy, to be blunt. There's a lot of hypocrisy in the church with this because uh, oftentimes we've had selective moral outrage, all right? Selective moral outrage means we have been outraged over this sin and yet at the same time, we've looked uh, on the other side at everything from our materialism to our greed to our gossip and said, well, forget about those. Those are minor. This is major over here. The answer then is not to condone whatever. It's actually get real and repent of our sin. So it's personal, it's painful, and it's confusing. Like, how is it confusing? It's confusing for a lot of ways. It's confusing because of just what's out there in our culture right now. In our culture right now, there's a lot of confusing signals, even from churches. Here's some of the things that are confusing. You know, it's like, are, are, are people born gay? Are people born gay? It sure feels like it. And if they are, is, is, does that make it a difference? Or other times, it's like many people are saying, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So if he never said anything about it, can it really be all that important? And then in the last 30 years or so, there's been a lot of Western writers, a lot of Western, even kind of... Uh, uh, theologians or so forth that said, you know what, we've looked at the passages again and we're kind of reinterpreting these passages versus what they've been interpreted like for the 1970 years. We're going to reinterpret that and, you know, it's like, hey, is that true? I mean, church has been wrong before. Is it, is it wrong this time? So all that being said, here's what we're going to try to do, all right? Number one is what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships, all right? What does it say? There's four or five, maybe six, depending on how you look at one of them. There's maybe six passages in the Bible that exclusively deal with same-sex relationships, all right? Four, five, six. We're not going to hit all of them. We're going to hit about four of them today. As I said, it's more technical than normal. We won't answer every question you've got. I thought of three or four even since the first service. I'm like, oh, well, we should have answered that one. There's some resources. There's a slide at the end of the sermon that'll just say resources that you can go. And I've put down about five resources that you can go and get. One of them's a podcast, three or four of them are books. Some are short little books and some of them are pretty thick books, all right? And so you can do that. I won't answer your question or won't answer every question you've got. Uh, I'll try to, I tried to anticipate them. So number one is what does the Bible say? And then just as importantly is also how do we love and serve the gay community as Jesus would? All right, if you're a Christ follower, you have to ask that question, all right? It's not just enough to be right. It's like, how am I right? It's not just enough to have the right position. 
It's what is the posture that I'm supposed to have toward people as well. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's not just truth, it's also grace. It's not just conviction, it's also compassion. So that's where we're going to try to go today. And uh, again, put on your hat. If you, uh, you know, if you've got coffee with you, drink, take, take a big drink, drink of that for the next 15 minutes, all right? It's, the reason we have to do this is because, listen, every one of these has been kind of discombobulated. And I'm going to, I kind of want to tell you when we go through these passages on the front end, you're not going to have to guess at all. Again, there's scores of passages that deal with God's sexual ethic. You understand that? There's scores of passages that deal with God's sexual ethic. There's five or six that deal with it specifically. One last caveat. And I'm trying to use, I want to use language that is not essentially inflammatory. All right? There's tons of labels, tons of language in here. What about this? And I'm going to try to use two, I'm going to use two terms a couple of different times today. The first term is historical and the second term is progressive. All right? It's the term John Tyson used in his great series, Controversial Jesus, up in New York City. And I'm like, all right, those are the terms I'm going to use because those are the best ones because they actually describe what's going on. Uh, again, one of them is uh, progressive. It's like, what are they saying that's kind of new? And then one of them is historical. That's fair because basically for 1960 years, all major divisions, all major Christian denominations, Anglican, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, they all basically taught the same sexual ethic on this issue. Progressive writers almost exclusively, not quite totally exclusively, but almost exclusively, primarily Western writers and theologians in the last 30 years or so have begun to question what the Bible actually teaches about this. I'll tell you up front, I hold to the historic position, and I'm going to give you a few reasons why I just do not find the progressive argument about these texts very compelling or very convincing. I'm going to do so without trying to act like that's just an ignorant argument. I'm just going to tell you why. Here's why I think the historical argument for the last 1960 years, virtually every theologian until the last 30 years has held to these. So again, won't answer all your questions, but... Let me start off with uh, kind of uh, ground zero of God's sexual ethic. All right, so I'm not going to go into this real deep because we're going to hit it in the last sermon as well. And uh, Genesis 1:27, here's what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, real quickly, sometimes people look at Genesis 1 and 2, and they're like, man, what's the deal? Why are there two creation accounts? I mean, I look at Genesis 1 and it's creation, Genesis 2 and it's creation. I mean, did the writer not know that he wrote chapter 1 before? No, understand, chapter 1 is like a 10,000-foot view of creation, all right? 10,000-foot view. Here's the big picture of creation. Chapter 2 of Genesis, he lands the plane and starts going over some detail of creation. So verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, that's Genesis 1. I want you to understand, Jesus and the New Testament writers continually come back to this every time they deal with God's sexual ethic. Listen to me again. The reason this is so important is Jesus in Matthew 19 Paul, when he talks about this, they all go back to this to say this is God's design and God's sexual ethics. So it's important to know that it's there. All right, chapter two. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now I'm going to come back to the word fit. Some of uh, your translations say corresponding to. Others of, you, others of them say suitable for you. 
right? And some of you are like, oh, helper. I don't even like the idea of being a helper. That's super chauvinistic. Understand uh, really what the word helper there is actually the word is czar, which is used for God more than anything else. So in other words, it says God is the czar of Israel. And so ladies, don't figure like that's some kind of put down, all right? Izar is actually used of God and then it's used of you. In essence, it's like, man, man needs some help. Man needs some help, so I'm gonna give him a great helper. So don't take it as a derogatory or misogynistic term. It's actually the opposite. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper, and here's the word again, fit for him. Again, put that in your memory, we're gonna come back to it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now these next few verses, you will have heard. Some of you all been at a wedding and like, that's where that came from. I never knew that's where it came from. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now granted, guys, you would have thought Adam would have come up with something just a little bit slicker than that, all right? I mean, it's like a woman, a naked woman gets brought to him and it's like, this is yours. And all he comes up with is, this is bone of my bones. I mean, come up with some, Eureka, something like that. But he didn't, all right? So she shall be called woman because she, woman is Isha, Man is ish. So Genesis 1.27 says, and I will make them ish man in isha, woman, because she was taken out of man. So equal, both made in the imago Dei, the image of God, equal yet distinct. So here's one you've heard uh, maybe at some weddings before. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife or be united to his wife. Sometimes it's cleave to his wife. Almost every theologian says at least part, if not the entirety of that phrase is the idea of sexual intimacy, husband and wife coming together. And they shall become one flesh, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, were both naked and not ashamed. All right, so here's, here's what we're gonna do. This is a beautiful poetic account of the creation of the world, God's design for human flourishing. It is also the 101 the introductory message of both gender and sexuality. As I said before, Jesus goes back to this passage when he is dealt with. He's like, tell me about marriage. And he goes back to this passage. The New Testament addresses sexuality is based completely on Genesis 1 and 2. So let's just make some cursory observations. Uh, number one, what he says is sexuality is good. All right, sexuality is good. Sexuality and sex was not dreamed up by somebody that thought that would be fun. That was God's idea. Right from the beginning, he's like, this is great, it's good, put it together, all right? So Genesis one and two is awesome. It doesn't get jacked up till Genesis three. So right here, just sexuality is good, made in God's image, equal but distinct. Number two, reproduction is good. Reproduction is good. He says, be fruitful and multiply. It's not the only reason he gave sexual intimacy. It is a reason he gave sexual intimacy. Go make babies, all right? That's what he basically is saying. Number three, marriage is good. Marriage is good. It says a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Now look at me, look at me. You're like, well, maybe that's descriptive and not prescriptive. That's one of the arguments. Progressive would say, you know what? That's just descriptive, but that's not prescriptive. It's describing what happened. It's not prescribing what should happen. And the reason that kind of falls apart is a couple reasons. 
Number one, he starts off with the word therefore. In other words, therefore, this is it. Secondly, Jesus uses it way years, years later. And thirdly, when he says leave father and mother, he doesn't have a father and mother to leave. This is Adam. Adam ain't got no father. He ain't got no mother. And so he's saying this is a prototype. Adam doesn't have a father to leave. He's saying I'm putting into place a way that marriage is supposed to be put in place. It's a pattern. It's a type of sexuality. So Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Listen to me. Every single time, there's not an exception. Every single time, the Bible talks about sexual sin. Every time. Every time it talks about sexual sin, it talks about it outside the boundaries of Genesis 1 and 2. Every time it talks about sexual sin. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm well aware that I represent the group of people that has the most sexual sin in the world. All right, I'm a heterosexual male. So before you kind of look down your nose at all the other sexual sin, realize that heterosexual males, that we're responsible for the pornography industry, we're responsible for the slave trade industry, we're responsible for prostitutes, we're responsible. So just kind of keep in mind before you go, I'm gonna make this sarcastic joke about this homosexual or this whatever. It's like, listen, you need to repent of that, all right? You need to understand, just as a group, there's Anytime it's outside of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, a man and a woman in a covenant relationship called marriage, a monogamous covenant relationship, the Bible just calls that sexual immorality. It's the Greek word perneia, which is that big inclusive umbrella word to say it's outside of that. You're like, all right, well, what's the deal? Let's move on to the next one. I'm tired of that. All right, let me give you one more thing. Just so you can understand it, sometimes an argument is made when it says that he made a helper suitable for him or fit for him. Again, you don't come here, you don't come to church to get a Greek lesson or a Hebrew lesson. You don't come to, it's like, but it's just important to understand. Here's, here's an argument that is made that I want to show you why it doesn't seem to be that's at all what's going on. Okay. The word fit or corresponding to is this word right here. Okay. And you can't really tell it from here, but if you were to draw a line right in between there, it's actually two words. The first one being K, the next word being negdo, which is the idea. It's two words that are pushed together. If he wanted to say, because the argument is, okay, a helper suitable for him, all that needed was another human, regardless of male or female, all that really means is a helper. In other words, it's not a cow, it's not a giraffe, it's not an elephant, it's not a woozle. What it is, is, you know what, this is, uh, it's just a human. And if, and if that had been the case, this would have been the only thing that would have been needed, K-E, okay? K-E means like, it does mean like. It's like he made somebody K like him. That's not the word. It's this word, and it takes this other part of the word, which means corresponding to him or different from him or literally in the face of him, and it's the idea of the same in some ways but distinct in other ways. To put it bluntly, men and women are absolutely 100% equal in the eyes of God, both made in the image of God, but they're not the same. They're not the same. And so, uh, anyway... You take 127, the etymology here, uh, God's design for marriage, that, that would be the first one. Let me go to the ones that are a little bit, usually people are like, that is so harsh, and let's, let's kind of unpack that a little bit. Skip over and go to the book of Leviticus. You're like, Leviticus? You're going to throw Leviticus at us? Okay, understand, let me read the verses, and your question is, is that even still relevant to us today? You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, let me tell you on the front end. The text does not say that the homosexual is an abomination. That's not what the text says. It says the sin is an abomination, all right? So the churches that are like, you know what? 
Gays are an abomination to God. Uh, you just need to like get your text straight. That's not what the text is saying. All right? As a matter of fact, any sin, all right, our sin of greed, all right, our sin of materialism, our sin of lust, all that is an abomination to God. It's so bad, Jesus had to down a cross for it, so it's not that harsh to say it's an abomination. All right, we're so bad, Jesus had to die for our sin and yet so loved. All right, don't say, don't say they're an abomination, it's the act. Next one. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You're like, all right, what you gonna do with that? What you gonna do with that? Let me, uh, let me make a couple of obvious points here. Content or context of the book of Leviticus is pretty easy. You're like, man, that is the weirdest book. What's the deal about tattoos and fabrics and eating bacon? And man, I like bacon. And is that wrong to eat? You know, what, what is the deal? Is that still relevant for us? Because this kind of is typically the book that late night, late night talk show host will cherry pick and say, see, you say this is wrong, whatever it is, and yet you don't, you know, you, you, you wear... You wear fabric, all right? I saw you to BLT, whatever that is, so you cherry pick. So let's just kind of unpack that for a second. Here's the context of Leviticus. The context of Leviticus is simply one word, holiness. The whole book is about holiness. It's about God's holiness. And so all throughout the book, you got all this stuff. All course, holiness is used, holier holiness is used 87 times in the book of Leviticus alone. Everywhere in the book, everything is holy. And the idea is here, God's people were about to go into the promised land, and when they were going to go in, they were going to replace a people that were extremely unjust, extremely immoral, and it's like, I want my people to live a different way. I want you to be holy as I am holy. And so he said, I want you to have some priests that are holy. I want you to wear some clothes that are holy. I want you to have a place, the tabernacle, that is also holy. And so the whole thing is about holiness. What you've got to ask is, and what we need to answer is, is Leviticus still relevant to today? We're in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. Is it still relevant to today? As I said, you're like, man, Leviticus says some goofy stuff about, you know, fabric and charging interest and all this kind of stuff. Is it relevant to today? Let me make a couple of observations. If you're a Christ follower, you can't really throw the Old Testament out, even the book of Leviticus, just out. Jesus quotes from the book of Leviticus Actually, the most quoted verse I believe he ever does is out of Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Peter quotes from Leviticus. Paul quotes from Leviticus. Leviticus 18 and 20 is pretty similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as well. The ethic there is like, don't have incest. All right? Love your, don't hate your brother. Don't commit adultery. They're very similar in their ethic. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Very, very important verse in the New Testament for you to interpret the Bible correctly. Okay, listen to me carefully. You're like, what is all this stuff about the Bible? Jesus says this, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. So what does that mean? One of the things we talk about all the time here at our church is the whole Bible is about Jesus, all right? It's not the Old Testament God who's cranky, and then he ends up going to Cal Berkeley in the New Testament, and now he's like super nice and progressive. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's like one God, and the whole book is talking about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and the New Testament is talking about Jesus. The Old Testament is a shadow. The New Testament is substance, okay? And so when he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, what does that mean? Theologians for decades, not decades, for hundreds and hundreds of years have been able to see in the Old Testament kind of a division 
of the way the laws are. Now, this isn't some arbitrary deal some theologian made up. You can see the way that the New Testament talks about the Old Testament to break it down in about three different ways. Way number one is called the ceremonial law, which is a lot of Leviticus. The ceremonial law is, I want to show you a picture of the coming Messiah. For example, the most obvious one is they were supposed to sacrifice a lamb. Sometimes people are like, why don't you all do that? Why don't you all do that? The Old Testament, and they were correct. The, the book of Leviticus commands you guys to like slay all these animals. Why don't you do that now? We don't do that now, but because the New Testament teaches we don't do that now. For example, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. You go to the book of Hebrews, and the whole book of Hebrews talks about, listen, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that takes away your sin. It's the name of Jesus that now takes away your sin. So that's called, that, is called, that is called ceremonial. That's ceremonial law. Second would be civil law. Civil law is a law given to the nation of Israel as a theocracy. We're not a theocracy now. You don't stone somebody to death because he told his nation, his holy people to do so. What you have thirdly is the moral law. Listen to me, the moral law, the moral law is God's good law, number one, to show us our need for Jesus, but number two, to show us the way to human flourishing. Those laws are not there to take the fun out of life, it's to put the flourishing into your life. And so when we look at those moral law, it's binding on all people at all times. Even the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul, just jot this down. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, when he talks about sexual immorality, he takes these words out of Leviticus, squishes them together, actually makes up a brand new word to talk about this. You're like, all right, enough of that, enough of that. I need some, what did Jesus say? Well, let's, let's go to the New Testament, Matthew 19. All right, and believe, before you email me and say, that's not, wasn't about, this wasn't about a sexual ethic. This was about divorce. I, 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 actually, I, I did read the passage. It is about divorce, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that when he got a question about divorce, he used it as a pulpit to talk about God's original design back in Genesis 1 and 2. So Matthew 19, it says this, and the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the guys that should have known the Bible. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We talked about the different schools of thought there. But here's what he answers. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He made them male and female. What's he quoting? He's quoting Genesis 1.27. Then he skips to chapter 2 and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then verse 6 says, So they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. Talking about sexual intimacy, the actual physical act, one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, do not let man separate. All right. Um, you're like, all right, people say uh, Jesus never spoke about same-sex relationships. And that's, that is only in the most technical sense true. Only in the most technical sense true. You see it clearly, he affirms the creative order. He affirms the Mosaic law that said sexual design between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage relationship. And then just to be blunt, there's several different ways that you can point out something as wrong. I mean, for example, if I, if I brought five women up here on the platform and said one of them, only one of them is my wife, there's two ways that I could point out which one was my wife. I could either say, that one's not, that one's not, that one's not, and that one's not. And then the one remaining, that would be my wife, all right? 
Or you could just simply say, that's my wife right there. And by her being my wife, the rest of them are not my wife. And in repeatedly affirming the mosaic understanding of the sanctity of sex within a heterosexual marriage, Jesus disallowed all deviations, whatever variations they may take. There's a lot of stuff Jesus did not de- you know, talk about. He didn't talk about fraud. He didn't talk about idolatry. He didn't even talk about rape. He didn't say any of those, but nobody's going to say that is okay. Lastly, this might come as a shock to you, but Jesus was not a white pasty, white, Norwegian-looking, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Breck hair model. That's not who he was. That's not who he was. That's who our pictures show him, and that's not who he was. More likely, he was a short-haired, brown-skinned, Hebrew-speaking Jew. Now, as a Jew, he talked mainly to Jews. That's very clear. He did talk to Gentiles some, but mainly to Jews. Now, listen to me. Every Jewish writer, every Jewish writer without exception, from 500 years BC before Jesus to 400 years AD after Jesus, all of them affirmed that God's sexual ethic was one man, one woman in a marriage relationship. There's not anybody that's like, well, there's another way to look at it. All of them did that. So you're like, why didn't he talk about it more? Because talking to them, it would be like me talking about, you should sing a song now. No, you know you're supposed to sing a song. You already know that. Let me give you one more, and then we're going to make sure we spend time. I ran out of time in the first service to deal adequately with like our ministry. So let me give you this last one, and um, it's in Book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, let me stop there. Impurity at this point in Romans 1 is talking about any impurity. It's talking about any impurity. Let me say it again. Any impurity, any sexual impurity at all. He's saying that isn't another, that's another form of idolatry, all right? If it's like I'm hooked on pornography, that's really idolatry. It's like, you know what, I'm flirting with my secretary, that's idolatry. And so before you and I kind of look down our moral judgment, understand he's talking about anything outside. So some of you are like living with your boyfriend, living with your girlfriend. You're like, well, I got the gift of shakarosity. That is not biblically, it's not biblically what God would have for you. It's not biblically flourishing with what God would have. So here's what he says. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Leave that up there for a second. That's really, the, that's really what Romans 1 is about, is you've got the human race making a choice. I am going to worship and serve, and I'm going to pour my life into not the creator who loved me and made me and then eventually would die for me. What I did is I'm going to pour my life into the creature. I'm going to pour my life into the gift, not into the giver. Okay? That is why idolatry is the number one sin in the Bible. That's where you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm worshiping just the idea of having a family instead of worshiping God. That's idolatry. And so what he says is, you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Now verse 26 and 27, you see where he talks specifically about this. You're like, is he picking on, is he picking on same-sex relationships? He's actually not, but I'll show you maybe why he did. For this reason, for this reason, why? This reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. All right, so big picture. Big picture of Romans 1. Every person has the same problem. Every person has the same problem. That's Romans 1. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3 are like horrifically bad news. 
right? Romans 1 to about Romans 3.20 is like the worst news in the world. It's like all of us are black-hearted sinners. We are separated from God. We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. We have rebelled against the holy God. We've turned away from the knowledge of God that God made through our conscience and God made through creation. We've rejected his authority. He condemns straight people. He condemns gay people. And he goes on and he says things like covetousness and malice and slander and gossip and all this stuff. It is like a really, really, really bad deal. But then, and this is what our church is about, then he gets to chapter 3, verse 21, and he starts getting into the good news. And he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is the Old Testament's talking about the coming Jesus. And then it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe. So uh, let, me, let me put a couple of sentences out here. Now, uh, if you quote me and you email me and you quote me wrong, I'm going to shame you, okay? So listen carefully about what we're saying here. Homosexuality does not automatically, homosexuality in and of itself does not send you to hell any more than heterosexuality sends you to heaven. What sends you to hell is refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord and center of your life, regardless of how that manifests itself. If you never make the choice that Jesus is going to be my Savior, he is going to be my King, he is going to rescue me, and I'm going to be a Jesus follower, even if that manifests itself in greed or materialism or, or whatever, or same-sex relationship, the issue is not same-sex relationships. The issue is repentance. Okay? If you've never repented of you being Lord of your life, that's what separates you from God. And so when he goes over here, it's, again, it's not the way you express your rebellion that matters. What matters is, does this exist at all in your life? And so uh, what that does is that really helps us with having no moral pride here. It's offense both to Paul and the cross of Jesus to look down your nose at homosexual acts in Romans 1 and then ignore the rest of Romans 1 that talks about slander and envy and covetousness and judgmentalism and greed, which are also mentioned in the same chapter. What that is is the Christian is a beggar who has found bread and no beggar who has found bread is going to go off bragging about the fact that he made this awesome bread. Right? There's a deep sense of humility. You know what? God saved me. God loves me. And I want to tell you about that too. Put it another way. Everybody in this room, all right? Everybody, listen to me, care. Everybody in this room has a bent, a proclivity, a tendency toward sin, sexual sin. Right? We live in a fallen world. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We live in Genesis 3 and beyond. And in Genesis 3 and beyond, what you have is a broken world and have a bent toward sin. Romans 5 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In other words, you have a bent toward that. Now listen to me carefully on that. Our culture today says a bent toward something requires you then to fulfill that bent. You be your authentic self. That is in some ways the God of our culture right now. If you are not true to yourself and you are not being your authentic self, and the chief thing right now is be your authentic self. What I want to say is, even if you have the desire, doesn't necessarily mean you've got to take the behavior. Even that great bastion of truth, Time Magazine, had this on their cover a while back. It says that this, it says, infidelity may be in our genes. Did y'all read that cover? Infidelity may be in our genes. 
So the question, does that mean that a married man who has an innate desire for sex with a woman who is not his wife, that he must fulfill that desire in order to be his fully authentic self? Brothers, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and not try that at home. If you go home to your wife, you're like, you know what? I saw this woman. I had this desire for her, so I slept with her to be my authentic self. She's probably like, you know what? I'm going to get my nine millimeter out, and I'm going to be my authentic self back to you as well. Point being is this. Desire, desire does not automatically mean you've got to fulfill that particular behavior. Now, here's i uh, I'm going to read. I, I will say this. I don't think I've ever... Uh, well, I've never quoted from this particular guy before, but I would say it is important because here's the question. If a person's born that way, if a person is born toward, with a bent toward that, and I would say this, I think within a good conservative biblical theology, same-sex attraction could certainly be a real deal. Now, there's not a, everybody's like, oh, is it a gay gene? I don't know if it's a gay gene or not. And whether it's by nature or by nurture, I don't know. It's, probably, it's very complex. It's probably a combination of stuff. I don't really know. I would say, don't come up with these little crass answers, okay? Little crass answers about this is it. Everybody who struggles with this has been abused. That's not, that's not, it's really just not the case, all right? But when you come up to, is it nature? Is it nurture? What is it? The studies are all over the map. They say it's very complex. Here's the point I would say to this. It doesn't really matter when it comes to if you're a Christ follower. The Christ follower, Jesus never said, be your authentic self and fulfill every desire, all right? The Christ follower says, take, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Instead of live for yourself daily, it says you die daily. What does that mean? Here's what an affirming author, in other words, an affirming writer, affirming means he's all for saying this is fine, but even an affirming writer is saying just because you're born with a particular desire, even a seemingly fixed desire doesn't mean it's automatically moral to act on that desire. Justin Lee, affirming author, put it this way, and I quote, just because an attraction or a drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on it. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed, if we all agreed, he doesn't, but if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that would not necessarily mean that same-sex attraction, uh, attractions aren't inborn. Is it sin? Is it sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. So you're like, well, why is the Apostle Paul picking on homosexuality here? If there's all this other jack stuff going on, if there's all this other stuff that's going on, why is he picking on this? I don't really know exactly. I think one author hit it pretty close when he said this. He said, if God made us in his image, male and female, then it shouldn't surprise us that the effects of our rejection of us show up in those primary relationships. So again, when you look at the text, I'm like, it Put on top of that, you can see that it says they exchanged, they had passion for one another because the argument typically, the progressive argument typically is, uh, goes a certain way. Here's the way the argument has kind of gone in recent years. I actually was confronted with this like four years ago and I wasn't even sure. I was like, what? I know that's not true, but I wasn't sure how to search for it on Google without covenant eyes springing, you know, springing a leak. And, but here's what it, in recent years, some have tried to say this passage refers, this is very important. You will hear this at some point in your life. If you have any missional endeavor at all, if you love people the way you and I should love people, you need to at least understand this. Because here's what has been a very prominent argument over the last 10 or 15 years. All right, about probably about eight years ago when this particular, there was a particular book written and it's like, this is it, this is it. And, and let me read it to you first. Let me explain it first. In recent years, some have tried to take the Romans 1 passage 
and say that it only refers to a certain kind of promiscuous homosexual act. Things like prostitution, uh, one night stands, masters forcing slaves to have sex with them, that kind of stuff. And what they say is Paul was simply unfamiliar with the committed, loving, homosexual, monogamous unions we see today. And if he had have known that, he certainly wouldn't have talked that way. And let me just lovingly say that's not true. That's not true. It is true that that was was definitely part of the Roman and Greek world. It was definitely part of the Roman and Greek world. Prostitution was huge back then. Masters definitely took advantage of slaves. All that was very, very true. But to say that didn't understand that at all is not true. Enduring, committed, same-sex relationships were certainly a thing in the Roman world. And Paul most definitely would have known about them as as a traveler. I think the first time uh, I've ever used this word, but uh, Plutarch, there's a resource for you. Plutarch actually wrote in the first century, makes a distinction between homosexual sex for mere pleasure and homosexual practice rooted in a committed relationship. Plato mentions two adult men who were lovers for more than 10 years. Historian Thomas Hubbard, who is not a Christian, by the way, who wrote the definitive work on homosexuality in the ancient world called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome. He shows that homosexuality existed in a wide variety of forms in the Greek and Roman world, including committed same-sex relationships. Now listen, that is a whole lot to say. The position, the historical position is much weightier and I do not find, again, the progressive element convic- you know, convincing or compelling at all. You're like, well, okay, you're right, you're right. Just as important as your position, loved ones, is your posture. You can be right in what you say and wrong in the way that you actually say it. You're like, you about to compromise on us? Like, shut your mouth. I'm not going to compromise at all. You don't have to be a jerk to be right. You understand that? All right? Here's, what, here's, what's, here's what's troublesome. They ask young people, what is the first thing that comes to your mind When you hear the word Christian, 91% said anti-homosexual, 87% said hypocritical, 85% say judgmental. Now, is there maybe an agenda on a part of the pollster? Maybe. Is there some things that we have not done that is unduly put on us? Maybe. But we got to understand a lot of this is not because the position is wrong, but because the posture is wrong. And the question has to be not just what the Bible says, is how do we love how, do, how would Jesus have us as Jesus followers love our gay friends? How would, we, how would he have us do that? Now, this is going to be a little quicker. And I want to remind you, last week was trying to set the bookends, compassion and conviction. We obviously need to take the log out of our own eye. We need to run to God in repentance because of the gospel. Don't gloss over your flirting, your living before marriage, living with somebody else. Who, all that's... Deep, the gospel ought to give us deep humility without a drop of hostility at all, all right? Listen to me. We're not waging war. I hear, you hear all this stuff, culture war, culture war, culture war. Where in the Bible does it say for you and I to war against sinners? Where does it say that? Write me an email. Tell me, where are we, suppo- where are we supposed to wage war against sinners? I mean, thank God God didn't wage war. He didn't come to punish us. He came and he took the punishment for us. And so when you understand the gospel, what you understand is we're not waging war against the homosexuals. Jesus fought and won the only war that matters, and that's the war against sin and death. So what we've got to ask is, how do I walk in the way of Jesus in this cultural moment? Let me give you one or maybe two, and they'll be kind of quicker. Here's the one that, because here's what... I actually trying to figure out, I'm like, how do I do that? How do I do that? Because I have failed in this enough times where I've been right 
positionally and wrong in my posture? I have. I haven't meant to be. But here's some things I never, because here's what I was asking. How come, for the most part, people that were anything, they were not like Jesus at all, but somehow they liked Jesus? Now, I'm not saying everybody liked Jesus. The religious leaders didn't like him, and also some sinners didn't like him. Not every single altercation he had in the Bible is written down or in, when it's three and a half years. But here's the one that I saw, the way that he dealt with people is he always seemed to lead with love. The law came later. He led with love instead of the law. You're like, well, I want them to know where I stand. Hey, hey, Scooter, they know where you stand, all right? They know where you stand. The question is, do they know that you have a Savior that loves you, saved you, and loves them? That's the bigger question. And so... You're like, you have to show me that in the Bible. Let me give it to you just super quick, but Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, it's all about ethics, all about sexual ethics, all about that stuff. Then he heads off to meet people. In Matthew 8, he meets a Roman, he meets a Roman soldier. Now, we kind of gloss over that. It's like, oh, that's a soldier. That Roman soldier was actually oppressing the Jewish people that Jesus was a part of. Violence, paganism, oppression, and this guy comes to him and is like, hey, I just need some help. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There's no record of him talking to him about their paganism. There's no place in them. It's like, let me give you a biblical view of violence. There's none of that. You go to Matthew 9, he sees a guy named Matthew, a tax collector. And here's what the text says. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man, Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Again, Matthew was like the traitor. He was a traitor. And nowhere do you see in this dialogue back and forth where he talks to him about the tax code. He didn't talk to him about extorting the Jewish people, which he was. Now, I will say this. I'm pretty confident that some fireside chats about extorting people came up, but it wasn't at the very first. He just said, you follow me, you follow me. Probably the clearest example is that guy in the New Testament that even if you went to church like four times as a kid, you heard this story, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. You know, he climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. You're like, that is such a cute story. That's a horrible story, just so you know, okay? This guy was like the worst of the worst. So he climbs up in the tree, and Jesus is only recorded as saying two things in that whole dialogue. You understand that? Everybody's like, that was such an amazing. There's only two things Jesus told that guy. This guy was the guy ripping off his family and friends. He got money so they could pay the Roman army that was oppressing the people. So I mean, this is like the worst guy that you could ask for. And here's what the text says. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Real quickly, do you see this? First of all, how many people do you have that have been in your house that are nowhere close to your worldview. You see what he's doing? He's like, I'm coming to your house. Association with does not mean endorsement of. But somehow what he said is, I'm gonna lead with love and then I'll get to the law. But here's what he, here's what he finishes. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house since he's the son of Abraham. It's the idea that he came to faith. For the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. You know what he's doing? He's not affirming, listen, this is key. He doesn't affirm their behavior. He affirms their humanity. That's what he does. That's what we fail out the most. 
We don't even affirm the fact that they have been made in the image of Almighty God and are loved greatly by the same God that saved you. Instead, we're like, that's a voting block, or that's a pack, or that's just a people group, or that's just a group to be shunned. And yet Jesus, the summary sentence of him, it says, well, the tax collectors and sinners, they were all drawing near to him, to hear him. When's the last time that's been said about you? Man, they showed up at my desk just to kind of hear me talk about the things of God. When's the last time that happened? Billy Graham was actually asked a question. He said, what would you do if one of your children was gay? He's, he said, I, I, I just would love them more. I'd love them a little bit more. May we learn from that. May I learn from that. Can we just learn from that? He said, I'd love them just a little bit more. You're like, well, I got to tell them the truth. Okay, all right. That's not the whole thing. That is part of it. So let's go to the next. I'll tell you what, let me... Uh, well, let's just go to the second one. All right, just time-wise. You got to at some point love them enough to tell them the truth. All right? Church-wise, you got to love them enough to tell them the truth. So what does that look like? Let me give you, let me just quote one person. There's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. You might actually enjoy reading her book. Her book is uh, um, Thoughts of an Unlikely, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And Rosaria Butterfield was a practicing lesbian, a professor of lit at, and women's studies at Syracuse. And what she said is, she said, Romans 1 is what brought her to faith in Jesus. The pastor who led her to Christ actually at first refused to argue with her about her lesbianism. He got to it, but at first he refused to argue. He told her that according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life, how she defined herself, how she sought fulfillment, and Rosaria explains this, Romans 1 revealed my heart to me. She says, in Romans 1, Paul shows us that we all go through what Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. We have to ask, who gets to declare what is good? What is Lord in my life, my desires or God's word? And she says, quote, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to Declare good and evil. Play judge instead of be judged. Desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for God's glory. That's what I'm saying. It's like truth is, here's the, here's the best way I could, I, I tried to figure out, I was actually running yesterday and I thought I'm gonna change the last point. Here's sort of the summary of what you can see. You do need to know that God's laws lead to flourishing. I said it earlier, God put laws in there particularly the moral law, not as some cosmic killjoy that wants to make you go around with a frown on your face all the time and how miserable you can be. That's not what his laws are there for, okay? His laws are there, first of all, to give you a mirror to show you that you need Jesus, and then secondly, he gives you, how do you live a life of flourishing? I'm the designer, I designed you, here's how it works. And so all those fences, those are, those are to keep us from running out into the road and getting hurt. But here's the part you gotta understand, Christian particularly. It's God's law that leads to flourishing, but it's God's love that eventually leads to fulfillment, and you've gotta keep your eye on that. I think it was Keller that said this, our sexual desires go down to our very core. They are so deep that it's easy to wanna to define ourselves by them. But we, we need to realize that sex isn't the answer to our soul's desire, it's the question. We're all thirsty, we're all starving for love, but the love that we need isn't the love of another human being, it is, it's the love of God. 
That's why we're always talking about our primary message is not about your morals. It's about a Messiah, okay? It's about a Savior. That's what the primary message is. You see this all over the place. John chapter 8, a woman in deep sexual sin was brought to the feet of Jesus. And in verse 11, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the order is important right there. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. That's what every other religion teaches. The gospel is Jesus died for your sin. He took the punishment for your sin. And if I'll embrace Jesus by faith, then all those things he promises, redemption, adoption, all those things, they are yours. It's important. Jesus' last words on the cross, you got to get, his last words are on the cross were not, go fix yourself. His last words on the cross were, it is finished. It's finished. I've paid for that. As a church here, uh, I would just say this. If you're struggling with SSA, same-sex attraction, I had people after the first service, I'm really struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. Could you, listen, first of all, you ought to get a medal for being at church today. Thank you for being here. God loves you. We love you. We love to walk with you. We don't believe that that defines you. We don't believe that's your identity. That might be true of you, but it's not the truest thing about you. And so here's what our response is gonna be. I try to think of what's the best way to do it, and here's kind of the twofold way. I know there's a lot of pain here today. Maybe it's personal pain. Maybe you know somebody, a family that's just been, is being torn apart. You don't even know how to pray. And I also know there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of stuff like, oh, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? Here's the way I want to try to make it kind of easy for us, easier. I know in this room we got a bunch of connect group teachers. That's kind of the way we try to have a bunch of little churches in the bigger church. I can promise you if you're a connect group leader, you've got some pain involved in your connect group somewhere. You got some pain, either personal pain or it's personal but because they've got friends or family members or sons or daughters that are struggling. And so here's what I want you to do is as a, as a connect group teacher, here in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to come pray. You pray for your connect group. You don't mind even know what's going on. A lot of you do, though. Secondly, I would say this. You gotta make sure you get the log out of your own eye. You gotta make sure you get the log out of your own eye. You gotta make sure. We've got, as I said last week, when Jesus wanted to make a movement, what does he do? He doesn't go to the UN. He doesn't go to the White House. He goes to the churches in the book of Revelation. He says, I want a church with both compassion and conviction. I want one that loves as well as holds tight to my word. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I want to, uh, why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes for just one second. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I wanna invite you to uh, connect group teachers. You kind of lead off. If you'd come to the altar and you pray for somebody, pray for your connect group, I would ask other people, you have somebody in your life that you love. You don't know how to handle it. Maybe your family's been under a lot of disarray and you come and pray for somebody. You just come and pray. You're like, you know what, I'm praying right now. I'm praying for my granddaughter. I'm praying. And what you're like, what do I pray? You can either pray this song. The song's more about you. God, pour us out. Pour us out into a community. Help us to show a Savior that it will change people's lives. You can also simply pray and just say, pray. I pray for my son or my daughter or my grandson that they would have a life-changing, identity-forming encounter with the risen Christ, that that would change everything.